Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Best-selling author Lucy Diamond will be talking about her new book. And we have an episode of Tilly's Fiction Addiction. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Hello there. Every week we aim to delight you in the eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy, from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics. So if you love reading or just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. Thank you for joining us. This week, we've got a packed show for you. We've been joined by Sunday Times best-selling author, Lucy Diamond, whose book, Anything Could Happen, is out in the shops right now. Tilly Brogan will be in joining us for another edition of Tilly's Fiction Addiction, and she'll be introducing us to the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo and Novel. And we've got a couple of great books set in Prague in our series From Our Bookshelves. So these books are the ones we're really passionate about. And once again, we've also been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. And just before we do, I just want to remind you, as I do every week, we really want to hear from you. So if there's anyone out there that's listening that has found a super author that they've just discovered and want and so excited you want to share it with us, please let us know. Or if you um, are a local book club and you want to uh, promote yourselves, or indeed if you're a local author, and there must be plenty out there who are obviously so shy that you're not writing into me, but you must do get in touch and you can get in touch with me by email and my address is julian at river.radio so do do get in touch don't be shy now because uh, particularly authors you've got to publicize yourself and all of our listeners do do please get in touch great so let's start with a quick roundup of what book stories we've found in the news recently julian have you got our first one? Ooh. I beg your pardon. I, I was having a bit. I was having a bit of a cough, so I oh, muted dear. myself. I forgot to unmute myself, and <laughs> I do apologise, listener. Um, anyway, yes, I have a very interesting tidbit, and it, it's actually about um, a set of first editions of Lord of the Rings, which had been stolen from a hospice <gasps> charity shop in Worcester. Um, however, they were secretly returned after public outcry, and the 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 shop concerned with um, and the hospice is St Richard's Hospice in Worcester, and they had reported the theft um, at the tail end of December. Now, the collection with the three books, The Fellowship of the Rings, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King, and they were on sale for a combined amount of £1,495. Now, as you can imagine, that would be a substantial amount of money that would help the hospice in its work. And they they were normally kept in a locked cabinet. However, after this public outcry, the thieves obviously had a bit of a conscience um, because there was a social media storm afterwards, and they they secretly returned the books to the charity shop 
um, which is a really good thing because yes. it's quite, you know, that was a lot of money. Now, the yes. books, though they were first editions, now, this is really interesting because um, uh, though they were first editions, they were not the first printings because these three were published in 1957. But the first printing uh, of those editions were published in 1954. Oh, and the trilogy right. would be worth a staggering £25,000. Wow. So that so, just goes to show when you're buying first editions, you also want the first printing as well. Indeed, indeed. But what I'm saying to all those listeners out there, um, so, so, so the, the, the hospice has actually um, gone on to their um, website and, and their newsletter and said they are still available. So if anybody wants to um, to have that super collection. It's £1,495. And please, you can get in touch with St. Richard Hospice in Worcester. And I'm sure you can find them on a search. I'm sure I'm sure that's so, yes. And all for a good cause as well. Exactly. Yeah. And I was sad to see that author Kerry Hume died uh, recently. She was the first person from New Zealand to win the Booker Prize and also the first debut novelist to win that award. So uh, The Bone People is the book, and it was it won in 1986 and went on to sell over a million copies. But um, I've got to say that Kerry Hume didn't really write another book because the critical response sort of discouraged her from publishing further novels. And uh, when she won the Booker Prize, the big story of the evening... Uh, was how long it had taken her to get published in the first place. So she spent 12 years taking it from publisher to publisher, trying to get somebody uh, interested. And in the end, it was a tiny feminist collective that decided to take the punt. So well done them. Yes, Um, indeed. And it often is the case, isn't it, um, that, you, you know, it, authors, you know, they do take a, um, a, a long, hard slog yes. to get them published. Oh. And I do remember at the time that, you know, the people were pretty brutal about it when it came out. I think that with a, and I think it did knock a confidence. A bit, yeah, it? it's a good book, though. Heart. So I think hmm. we should grab a copy and remember the author, Kerry Hume. Exactly, exactly. Well, um, I've got another tidbit here, and uh, it's very interesting. Um, the Bank of England, would you believe, has now entered uh, the publishing market right. and it's just yeah it's just published a book called uh, can't we just print money now it's a pop uh, economics book which is illustrated funnily enough with flying pigs <laughs> and it was and it was devised by our own governor of the bank of england andrew bailey and it's been published by the business imprint of penguin books which is called cornerstone press now, the reason is that Mr. Bailey decided there um, uh, that an educational book was required because economists and their subjects are not well understood, and which I will quite agree with him. Yes. because it's, it, uh, it, 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 it's all gobbledygook to me. Um, and its goal is to provide a crash course in economics in 10 bamboozling questions and full of witty anecdotes and is really accessible with explanations, including the accident-prone nuclear power station in The Simpsons, mm-hmm. which is a favourite programme of mine. And also, um, it illustrates um, the lenders in um, the gold lenders in Babylon of uh, four thousand years ago, uh, and it even has a chapter which is which is interesting uh, called "What Became of the Ten Pence Freddo." And I don't know if any of you remember that frog-shaped Cadbury's chocolate bar. Well, in two thousand and two, it cost ten pence, but now in twenty twenty two. 
it now costs between 25 and 30 pence in a shop near you. So that is an illustration of the economics of how something priced at that point gets to this point. So inflation, possibly. Exactly. <laughs> I can't believe, though, that Freddo's still exist. I do, no, I do no. remember them. <laughs> no, I, I must admit, I can't really. Um, uh, and yes, I just think that they're still going 20 years on. But I suppose there we are. When all said and done, it's chocolate, isn't it? It is. But I remember going to the sweet shop when I was a child. So there always used to be a sweet shop by the school. And mm-hmm. you'd have your half pence. Yes. <laughs> the half pences don't exist, do they? No, and you'd they don't. buy a blackjack. And yes. those um, fruit salads, those little... Fruit salads, yes. And remember sugar mice with the string tail? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And bazooka bubblegum. That's bubble disgusting. Gum. Do you remember? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that sort of, uh, what was it? It was sort of sherbet. And you'd get it <gasps> in different yes. colours. And then you'd have the long oh, licorice sticks to stick yes. in. Yes. <laughs> the rainbow sherbet, yes. wasn't it? Yes, oh, the rainbow sherbet. It's love that. Uh, yeah. And, we could and do then a whole programme on sweets, couldn't we? Well, we could do, couldn't we? <laughs> Um, sweets in books, yeah. <laughs> There's one to think about. <laughs> Which brings us back to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, of yes, course. It and does. Sweets. And truly scrumptious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> right, so on a slightly more cerebral point, although not very cerebral, uh, I've got to say that news that Country Life magazine has a guest, a new guest editor this July, was in the paper this week. And it's the Duchess of Cornwall, ah. who is um, celebrating her 75th birthday in July with a red pen in her hand, as she'll be the editor of Country Life magazine. And the magazine itself turns 125 this week. It was first published in 1897. And to celebrate, um, Country Life magazine has gone back to that first publication and is reprinting some of the adverts from the very first issue, which is fabulous. So they've got one, there's one that I spotted called the Vigor's Horse Action Salad, um, Saddle. Sorry. Oh, action salad. Well, that's a, that's a good one. Well, you wouldn't want to be sitting on a salad, I can tell you, because uh, this was obviously the peloton of the day, as it was a three-speed spring-loaded contraption, which promised to stimulate the liver, reduce corpulence and cure gout. So build as the perfect substitute for a live horse. And I have got to say, actually, that one of our readers, ha- oh, sorry, one of our listeners has been in touch talking about the Duchess of Cornwall, to recommend her Instagram site about books called The Reading Room. Oh, excellent. Yes. So, um, Kate, thank you very much indeed for getting in touch with us and telling us about that. That sounds great. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, moving on to um, another slightly, well, not slightly, very healthy topic uh, is a book called Healthy at Last by Eric Adams. And it's just been published by Bluebird. And it's a rather inspiring uh, read. Now, we probably, I don't think we know much about Eric Adams here in Britain. Um, Not very well known, I don't think. But he is um, um, a former NYPD policeman who is, is currently the new mayor of New York. And this is an interesting story because it's not actually about crime or uh, anything like that, but it's it's about his journey, um, a health journey, which began when he was told that he may lose his sight if he continued to binge on junk food. Gosh. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I know that we think of junk food put, piling on the pounds around the waist, but I didn't even think it could be that. Yes. That, um, yeah. Dangerous. Um, ca- um, caustic. Mm. But anyway, he's on a mission to change what and how uh, people eat. 
because there's a, an epidemic of uh, diabetes, which is, is, is rife through the Western world. And this is a, quite an amazing story of how one man reversed decades of, of his poor health in actually just a few months. And in addition, he got his mother to go on a similar regime, uh, which resulted in her doctor taking her off insulin, which was, uh, had been prescribed to her for a decade. I mean, it's a most amazing story. Well, Very that's incredible, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. 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 Just, so that, just that change. Yeah. You, know? you are what you eat. Yeah, well, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Right now, for all film buffs out there, there is a fabulous new book that has just been published called, this is a great title, Audienceology. Ooh. How moviegoers shape the films we love. And it's uh, the author's Kevin Gertz, and it was published by Simon and Schutzer. And of course, money drives Hollywood. And because of that, studios now insist that they, rather than the director, get the final word on what goes out. Mm. And this means that audience test screening becomes a common day of reckoning for films before they're released. So it's fair to say that art doesn't necessarily make money, but money can produce great art. So interestingly, audience testing have, for example, persuaded Steven Spielberg to make Jaws scarier. And songs were added into La La Land. And Matt Damon, do you remember the film The Martian? Yes, I do. So Matt Damon, yes, presumably had to stay on Mars in the original um, original film and they made him uh, return back to Earth. And even James Bond, they changed the title to Licence to Kill because originally it was called Licence Revoked. Oh, interesting. Anyway, there's lots of really interesting stories for any film fan out there. Well, I know who will be absolutely pleased with that book, and that is BT. Do you remember BT and the BT um, uh, adverts? Oh, for, yes. yes. Anology. By, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Played by Dame Maureen Lippman. Yes. yes. Oh, it's got anology. So she'll be very pleased. So go on, uh, Dame Maureen. You, know, you need to buy a copy because it's got anology in it. <laughs> Uh, now, talking, uh, another notebook has, uh, has come up, and which is a, a very interesting one, containing um, some of the transcribed works of the scientist Sir Isaac Newton, one of our greatest scientists that's ever lived. Yes. Uh, and it is thought to have been lost for 340 years, but it's just been added to a collection at Cambridge University. And the notebook belonged to Sir Isaac's friend and collaborator, John Wickens, mm-hmm. who had transcribed all of Newton's work, and it includes Newton's exploring big questions, um, including free will and evil. Uh-huh. Now, the notebook was bought at auction last year and fortunately stayed in the country. It's now put back safely into the uh, into its home at Cambridge, where Newton and uh, Wickens shared rooms between uh, 1665 and 1683. And very interestingly, when I was reading the article, uh, what I didn't realise, because I thought this is, you know, this great man probably was, you know, lauded throughout the land, but uh, it seems to be that he's perceived as being quite um, a loner and that he wasn't really, I don't know whether he was antisocial, but actually from Wiccan's work, this is not the case. He was actually ah. quite a good going man. Yeah. Good. 
And now, and just in case you've forgotten what you're doing, you're actually listening to Turning Pages with Heather and me, Julian. And thank you for listening. Yes. Coming up, we've got uh, Tilly's Fiction Addiction. But to uh, but now, I want to tell you about a new book that's just come out from Sunday Times bestselling author Lucy Diamond, which is always a highlight of the year. She's written 17 books to date and her latest, Anything Could Happen, is out in the shops now. So I was in the delighted position to have a chat with Lucy earlier this week on the day her book was published. But before we start chatting, let's listen to the very first part of chapter one. Eliza was sitting on the wall, the hedge behind her prickling through her jacket, when a grubby white van slowed to a stop nearby, right on time. A flurry of nerves whirled up inside her like a shaken snow globe on seeing the van's logo, Steve Pickering, painting and decorating. The lettering was crummy and basic looking, like something stenciled from a cheap kit. The P of Pickering was even wonky, as if the person applying the letter had coughed in the middle or lost concentration. She allowed herself a scornful lip curl. If she'd ever started up her own decorating business, or any business for that matter, you could bet she would be at least put some effort into her branding. Eliza Spencer Magnificent Transformations, she could market herself. Or maybe she rummaged through every paint-inspired pun at her disposal. Brush hour, she considered wrinkling her nose. Fifty shades of great, whatever. Right now, she had other more pressing items on her agenda. Number one, the puffy-faced man with a sparse thatch of reddish-brown hair and low-slung paunch currently clambering down from the van, as shambling as a bear emerging from a cave post-hibernation. A bold new chapter in your life begins today, Eliza's horoscope app had encouraged her this morning, and the words came back to her now. Here goes, she thought, jumping off the wall. Hi, Shigar said coolly, taking in the stain on his faded t-shirt and the ancient train that's flecked with paint. So he was a slob as well as a terrible person, she thought in disapproval. When she was a proper grown-up with a job and everything, there was no way she would ever dream of leaving the house looking so unkempt. She'd been in the co-op the other day when a woman had walked in wearing a dressing gown with tangled bed hair. What was wrong with people? I'm your two o'clock, she said now. And then, because she couldn't help herself, she blurted out, Remember me? His putchy face creased in a frown. Then he glanced down at his phone before immediately looking back to her. Mrs Robinson, he said. You could almost hear the cogs grinding in his brain with painful slowness. Is she even old enough, he'd be thinking. What am I missing here? Eliza folded her arms across her chest and tapped her foot. Come on, Steve, make the connection, she thought. You can do it. You asked me to quote for, he said, followed by another swift check of his phone, renewed a doubt in his eyes. Apparently, basic logic was still beyond his means. A kitchen redecoration? Eliza snorted sarcastically, louder than was necessary, in an attempt to cover up precisely how crushed his blankness had left her. Despite everything... When she should have known better, because he clearly didn't remember her at all, unless his gormlessness was merely an act of cruelty. Her insides felt newly hollowed out. She was an avocado with the flesh scooped clean away. Yeah, I did, didn't I? She replied, deadpan. Still nothing. He hesitated, then jested at the house. Uh, shall we go in then? No, she sounded impatiently. 
and then her muddled feelings gave way to facetiousness because it seemed to be all she had left. Let's not, because I don't live there and we probably shouldn't go breaking and entering, not on a Thursday anyway. Her own home was 20 miles away in Scarborough. Her journey had involved two buses and a walk up from the bus station, plus a lie to her mum that morning about a migraine so that she could have time off school. And now, here she was, standing in front of a smart, semi-detached house just outside Whitby, her heart thumping, while Steve Pickering grazed at her in confusion. She was starting to wish she hadn't bothered. Dejection took hold and she sighed. Even after so many years, she hoped there might be at least a flicker of recognition. Blood calling to blood. I'm not Mrs Robinson, she said through clenched teeth, because clearly she would have to spell this out to him. I'm Eliza, Eliza Spencer, your daughter. Whoa, that was a bit of a bombshell, wasn't it? (laughs) Just imagine. It was. Anyway, the book carries on following Eliza's search and it is great fun and it is charming. And here's a conversation I had with Lucy Diamond. Congratulations on publication day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have you you had a really busy morning? I have. It's social media is so lovely on publication days because you're just getting messages all the time. So it's really, really nice trying to work as well, but just keep being distracted by nice messages. Just in a sentence, describe the book. Oh gosh, just one. Just one. Okay. It's about Eliza... 18, searching for her dad and her mum, Lara, looking for some answers. It's a love story, isn't it, really? It is really. It's about, it's about the road not taken, about second chances. It's about, you know, a wonderful night between two people 19 years ago in New York. Proper, you know, love at first sight thing that then vanishes the next day. Lara left really confused wondering what's happened and Ben the man in question not realizing he's actually a dad so the three of them got <laughs> their stories coming together with a bit of a clash and then wondering how on earth where do we go from here yeah because that's quite a dilemma isn't it for, for everybody actually the mum the the dad who didn't know he was a dad and the daughter it's incredible exactly and the mum has thought she's protecting her daughter from someone she thinks oh he obviously doesn't care but as you'll find out in the book, there are reasons why he never got in touch with her again. It was not not necessarily what she thinks. So there's exactly. quite a lot of unpicking to do and sort of, oh, okay, right. I also love the idea of, you know, you meet somebody nearly 20 years ago, you've, you know, you sort of lose your heart to them a bit. And then meeting up again all that time later, do you still like them? Is there still a connection? You know, what, yes. what do you think of them? That's quite scary. Have you ever met an old boyfriend in the street? <laughs> I've looked a few of them up online and, and thought, oh, you know. <laughs> I missed a real problem there. <laughs> I better not say anything. <laughs> Absolutely not. So New York is the, the background for the first relationship. It's a special city, isn't it? Have you got any links with New York? No, I mean, no. When I started writing the book, I was really hoping that by the time, you know, I was midway through and needed to go and do some research, I'd be able to get over there. But I haven't been to New York since I was a, you know, penniless. I think I was 21 the last time I was there. No, that's not true. I did um, Camp America twice. 
and went to New York afterwards to do some traveling around. And, but you know, I was penniless. I had no money. I couldn't really, I had to do it all on a real shoestring. So just like Lara, really? Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Lara. But I would love to go back. And it was so hard not being able to go back in person. I had to do all my research on street view yes. and, you know, walk through the streets that way. But it's really not the same. I'd love no. to go back. No, you, well, you've got to go back now. Anyway, for the American publication, presumably. <laughs> I will now you've said that. Yeah, I must. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you're saying that you were uh, researching it and writing it during lockdown. How did that change sort of how you write and how the book turned out? Well, at first, all my friends were saying to me, oh, well, you must be used to this working from home. You know, this is just the same as usual for you. And on some level it was. But I wasn't alone in my home. I had, you know, my three teenage children in the house suddenly and my husband working from home as well. And it was really noisy. But the thing I missed most was actually being out in the world because so so much of the books comes from, you know, being out in the world, talking to people, hearing stories, noticing tiny things, just sort of picking up on human behaviour. That all feeds in so much to my writing that when I was denied that, I, I really missed it. Yes, I can really see that because I love, there's lots of little vignettes that are really fantastic. In fact, I'm never going to look at a paint choice again in the same way. <laughs> and readers, you just need to read that scene about the paint aisle. But oh, um, yes. so how do you get your inspiration um, for your stories? And well, for your it's all those things, really. It is just talking to friends, reading the news, you know, it's often hearing a story or reading a story and thinking, gosh, how would I have reacted to that? What would I do if that was me? And then, you know, I can sort of spin off down a bit of a rabbit hole of like, oh, you know, I wonder what happened next. And, you know, that's just how my imagination works. But I sort of squirrel those details away or jot things down that interest me. And quite often I'll come back to them and think, oh, yes, that was quite, you know, that would have been really moving or, gosh, that must have been a poignant moment or that must have been funny. And, yeah, it's just, it's all layers of of details, my books. I feel, you know, it's, often I sort of go back through after, you know, edit after edit and I put in extra details just to try to, I don't know, bring the characters more to life, I think. Well, they certainly do live on the page. And I loved the sort of mother daughter new father relationship so how is being a mother influenced that whole going out and finding your dad because that that must have been quite scary for the mother to have gone through that I think so yeah yeah I've got two girls and a boy the eldest two are in their early 20s now so they are sort of growing up and leaving the nest and actually, Lara's whole empty nest dread was very much from me. <laughs> you know, she's sort of worrying about her daughter leaving home and what will become of her. I've certainly have those, had those thoughts. I was being interviewed yesterday and, and the interviewer said, you know, all characters' children seem to age as your children do, which was really perceptive of her because that's exactly what's happened. I feel like I'm tuned into a certain age of child or young person and I find them really fascinating and those sort of um, things often you know come out in the writing too. I can see that. So who's your favourite character in the book? I think it has to be Lara (laughs) but uh, I love them all you know there's no one I dislike you know I, I get to the end and I feel really sad to be leaving them behind I it's really quite hard to sort of 
you know close the close the page on them and think okay now I'm, I'm leaving them now I often think oh I wonder what they're doing now so Lara I could relate to a lot because she has you know she's really good hearted she's tried to do the right thing but I think she would admit herself she's not always made the right choices so that's quite difficult to come to terms with I think yeah but the problem is you don't know what the right choice is do you until you've got hindsight really no no, it's tricky. Yeah. I loved um, Ben's yeah. sisters as well, actually. I didn't think about doing a spin-off book about Ben's sisters because I found them really funny. So maybe, maybe in future. But um, so when you write a book, there's a big gap between the writing of it and this publication day. So when you're sort yes. of looking back now and reflecting on the book, what surprises you about the book? It's a, well, I'm always surprised by how the story changes as I go along. Because anything could happen, it did not start. It started with Eliza neither, neither knowing her real mother or father. <laughs> so it became, I thought, actually, no, that's too much. And I, I started getting in some plot knots about that. And I felt, thought I was sort of repeating myself a bit with the storyline. So I went right back to the start and I had Eliza and Lara's relationship already well established. And that felt that better balance to me. So I'm not a person who plots everything out in advance at all. It's only when I'm halfway through the book, I start thinking, oh, you know, what about, oh, this would be good, actually. This would be more an interesting story. So I'm surprised by, you know, how how it all seems to work out in the end, touch wood. I, get, I always get to a point in the book where I think, oh, no, I can't do this. This is a rubbish book. You know, I'm, what am I doing? I should just go and get a sensible job like normal people. And <laughs> it wasn't until one of my kids said, oh, mum, you always say this. <laughs> I thought, oh, I think I do actually. And this is obviously just part of the writing process. I have to just push through, keep going and just trust that the right story will come to me in the end. Yes, there's something about doubt being essential. So, it? yeah, I think for anything creative, you you have to have something pushing you on. And for me, it is panic and doubt. <laughs> But then that said, when it sort of clicks together, when I realise, oh, okay, this is the story, it's brilliant. It's always just the most thrilling moment where I think, oh, okay, this is this is a good story. Yes, yes. So it, it's almost worth all the, the dread and panic, I think. I mean, it's def- definitely worth the dread and panic because it's a lovely story and it's very warm and genuine and you feel these are people that you could meet in the street uh, I thank you especially this time of year I'm really glad the books come out in January because I think we all need a bit of an uplift don't we in January we all need something feel good in our lives so definitely <laughs> I hope Laura Eliza and Ben can just add a bit of sparkle to people's winters well I definitely think it could add a bit of sparkle to our uh, to our winters so anything could happen by Lucy Diamond is published by Quirkers and it's out in the bookshops now and you should read this book if you want a funny uplifting read full of escapism fabulous characters and romance hope and kindness yeah it sounds a really lovely book indeed it is. and the author sounds absolutely lovely she, she was lovely yeah really lovely Well, every month, Tilly Brogan joins us to discuss one of her favourite books that she's just read. And uh, this time she has chosen and read uh, a book called The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, a novel by the author Taylor Jenkins Reid. And it's uh, just been published by Simon Schuster. Let's listen to Heather's conversation with Tilly now. 
So, Tilly, you've chosen Taylor Jenkins' Reed book, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, a novel for your choice this week. So how did you discover the book? If I said Bookstagram and TikTok again, it feels like I never changed my tune, but literally I just get all my recommendations from there. Initially, I didn't want to read it because it's it's not YA and you know how I feel about young adult fiction. <laughs> I'm so glad I did. And it was a really good introduction back into the world of fiction. And I feel like I've really missed that world. And I've definitely got a new favourite author, I think. It was one of my top three reads for 2021, for sure. Great. That's really good. And it just shows you how influential Bookstagram and, and TikTok, TikTok is. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I will buy anything from that. It's really bad, actually. <laughs> no, there's recommendations. I think we all need a recommendation. <laughs> for sure, so, yeah. So how would you describe the book in one sentence? Okay, a snapshot into old Hollywood through the lens of a woman who is struggling with who the world wants her to be and who she actually is inside. Uh I don't want to give too much away. I feel like people might know what's coming, but I don't want to. I mean, it's not a huge spoiler, but I don't want to completely ruin it you know I think the title might have given away that she had seven husbands there I I know I know but there's yeah but you find out more about yes I'm just gonna leave it at that and then you guys can go around that (laughs) so I love that old style classical Hollywood film star glamour were you a film buff of old Hollywood you know Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor is that is that you I actually wasn't, which is quite rare. I'm quite a lot of my mum's friends and my friends as well were obsessed with that sort of era, but I just never really got into it. And I think partly that made me not want to pick up the book, but I'm annoyed for how long I went without reading this because, you know, you just get sucked in and you really do feel like you're living through 1950s America with Evelyn and at the same time experiencing it all. So I don't think you have to be a fan, but I guess if you're a fan, it makes it even better and richer as well. And so I have you now spent the Christmas holidays sort of delving yes. in. <laughs> Definitely been on Wikipedia a lot recently, reading about all the different eras and things like that. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say you've been watching films. Oh, no, no, not yet. <laughs> That's the next step. That's the next step. But That's I think I'm step. more, yeah, more into like the history and the, you know, the different things going on as okay. opposed to the films. But that's obviously the next step from there. Yeah. Just watch uh, West Side Story and that. Oh, I've seen West Side Story. <laughs> oh, there you are. Oh, okay. Maybe I am a fan. Maybe I've been a fan the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because that's still got that glamour to it. Yeah, I do. I, okay, I do like West Side Story, yeah. Okay. So you've described the book in one sense. Give us a little bit more of the storyline, a quick summary without giving anything away. Okay. So it centres around Evelyn Hugo, who is this massive, iconic old Hollywood star Um, But it's told from the point of view of this woman called Monique, and she's essentially an unknown journalist. And Evelyn commissions her to write down her life chronicles. So it's sort of told through the eyes of Monique writing and also Evelyn describing her life, her career, and most importantly, her relationships. And through these two point of views, you discover the truth behind who Evelyn Hugo really is, who she really loved, and more importantly, how her life intersected with Monique's own life, but Monique doesn't know and the reader doesn't know. And it's a massive plot twist um, that you really, really don't see coming. I, there are a few people that have guessed the plot twist. So did you like it, Evelyn Hugo as a character? I, I did. I have a thing for complex characters that are quite closed off at the start. But like the more you find out about them, you realise why they've always kept their cards close to their chest. And I think because her story is about her career and her love life and how those two things affected each other 
sometimes she makes some like dodgy career moves that make you just want to scream at her like why would you do this um but for me the best characters are the ones that you don't necessarily agree with morally but you know you can see that they're acting in their best intentions i think it makes the storyline just more interesting and the twists and turns even more of like a payout once you see why she's done it that way and of course in hindsight you're always going to make a better decision aren't you Oh, of course, when she looks back at some of the things she's done, even she will agree that she's made some mistakes. So obviously she's had seven husbands, which is excessive in any stretch of the imagination. Girl, girl, just tried a few. She just had to get through, see what she fancies. Exactly. (laughs) So who was your favourite husband and why? Definitely Harry. And I think most readers will agree with me. Again, I don't want to give anything away by revealing the circumstance of their marriage or their relationship. But he is the only one that knows the real Evelyn but I'm not going to say anything else because I don't want to give anything away but yeah definitely Harry he's such a sweetheart as well. Now and out of all the husbands which one surprised you in terms of which one do you think shouldn't have been married to her? Oh the first one she gets married to is very very dodgy but the one who surprised me in a good way was he was called Rex he comes before Harry. I think he's sort of midway. And I didn't see their marriage working. You know, as as you were saying, you sort of see in hindsight why Evelyn made these decisions. And when she tells Monique that she married Rex, I was like, oh, why? Why would you do that? But then the way their marriage works, again, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's quite a tactical you know, thing going on. And I was surprised at how well that actually worked out. So yeah, their relationship with Rex, I think, really surprised me. So it sounds like it's more of an arranged marriage in a way. Let's just say all seven husbands were married to Evelyn for a variety of reasons. Right. Now, throughout the book, Evelyn's quite, well, she's looking back on her life and she sort of feels where she's gone wrong or whether she was yep. good. And she sort of offers words of wisdom for the uh-huh. reader as we go through. So things like, you know, be wary of men with something to prove and yep. let anyone make you feel ordinary, which I think is a lovely thing to mm-hmm. say. Uh, what uh, what was your favourite piece of advice? At one point she says, I'm under absolutely no obligation to make sense to you. And that's when Monique is asking Evelyn why she is trusting her with her life story. And I really like Evelyn's response because I I can see a lot of myself and Evelyn here. And I feel like lots of people as well spent quite a lot of their life trying to do certain things or trying to appeal a certain way because that's what you think the world's expected of you. Um, And I think the pandemic's taught a lot of people that it isn't until you like let go of these expectations and just do what you want to do. And even if it's the smallest thing or the biggest thing, just do what makes you truly happy with no regard to what other people think that's when you will be truly happy and there's some really good advice from Cynthia Nixon aka Samantha Jones from Sex and City legend I read it in an interview a couple of years ago she says I don't want to be in a situation for even an hour when I'm not fully enjoying myself and I've just sort of taken that forward and I feel like Evelyn shares that so yeah that's that's good one be true to yourself hey yeah, and just not, not worry what people think because, you know, no one's really paying attention anyway. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. <laughs> right, you've chosen a section from the book that we're going to uh, to listen to. Do you want to introduce that to us? So it's when Evelyn is chatting with Rex about their proposed marriage arrangement. I feel like I've already given it away that it is a, an arranged marriage, so that's not a big spoiler. But they're discussing how the marriage might benefit both their careers. And it's sort of like the introduction to what's going to happen after that. 
Fantastic. Right, let's listen to that now. Thank you. There is a certain freedom in marrying a man when you aren't hiding anything. Celia was gone. I wasn't really at a place in my life where I could fall in love with anyone. And Rex wasn't the type of man who seemed capable of falling in love at all. Maybe if we'd met at different times in our lives, we might have hit it off. But with things as they were, Rex and I had a relationship built entirely on box office. It was tacky and fake and manipulative, but it was the beginning of my millions. It was also how I got Celia to come back to me. And it was one of the most honest deals I've ever made with anybody. I think I will always love Rex North a little bit because of all that. So you're never going to sleep with me? Rex said. He was sitting in my living room with one leg casually crossed over the other, drinking a Manhattan. He was wearing a black suit with a thin tie. His blonde hair was slicked back. It made his blue eyes look even brighter with nothing in their way. Rex was the kind of guy who was so beautiful it was nearly boring. And then he smiled and you watched every girl in the room faint. Perfect teeth, two shallow dimples, a slight arch of the eyebrow and everybody was done for. Like me, he'd been made by the studios. Born Carl Ovrison in Iceland, he hightailed it to Hollywood, changed his name, perfected his accent and slept with everybody he needed to sleep with to get what he wanted. He was a matinee idol with a chip on his shoulder about proving he could act. But he actually could act. He felt underestimated because he was underestimated. Anna Karenina was his chance to be taken seriously. He needed it to be a big hit just as much as I did, which was why he was willing to do exactly what I was willing to do, a marriage stunt. Rex was pragmatic and never precious. He saw 10 steps ahead, but never let on what he was thinking. We were kindred spirits in that regard. I sat down next to him on my living room sofa, my arm resting behind him. I can't say for sure I'd never sleep with you, I said. It was the truth. You're handsome. I could see myself falling for your shtick once or twice. Rex laughed. He always had a detached sense about him, like you could do whatever you wanted and you wouldn't get under his skin. He was untouchable in that way. I mean, can you say for certain that you'd never fall in love with me? I asked. What if you end up wanting to make this a real marriage? That would be uncomfortable for everyone. You know, if anyone can do that, it would make sense that it was Evelyn Hugo. I suppose there's always a chance. That's how I feel about sleeping with you, I said. There's always a chance. I grabbed my Gibson off the coffee table and drank a sip. Rex laughed. Tell me then, where will we live? Good question. My house is in the bird streets with floor-to-ceiling windows. It's a pain in the ass to get out of the driveway, but you can see the whole canyon from my pool. That's fine, I said. I don't mind moving to your place for a little while. I'm shooting another movie in a month or so over at Columbia, so your place will be closer anyway. The only thing I insist on is that I can bring Louisa. So thank you very much indeed for that. So when you've obviously read the book last year and really, uh, really enjoyed it, looking back when you're preparing for our conversation today, mm-hmm. what did you learn or what surprised you the most when you're reflecting back? I guess just how quickly I read it. I've only ever read a few books that quickly. Everyone I've given it to, I gave it to two of my neighbours and they read it in two days straight. 
and just utterly how amazing it was and I just couldn't put it down and I still have a waiting list of people that have messaged me like you know I'm actually taking turns right now (laughs) to see who wants to read it yeah just just the pace I think the pace is so amazingly done you just you simply just can't put it down the twists and turns I didn't see any of them come in and yeah I just really like the two main female characters for sure that's a yeah. great recommendation for a book where you give it to somebody and they read it in two days. I've that- had people people messaging me like, is your friend done with this book? <laughs> Try, like I'm like a librarian trying to chase people up at this point. It's crazy. <laughs> That's a great recommendation. So, <laughs> what about the main tropes then? So read this book if you want what? Oh, OK. Old Hollywood glam, secrets and scandals, queer love story twists and turns and a fictional character who you are convinced really exists in real life fantastic mm-hmm. that and great. I will say no more no say no more no spoilers and so Taylor Jenkins Reid has obviously got a number of books that she's she published. does yeah yeah so my cousin bought I was in Glasgow for Christmas and my cousin bought I think it's Daisy Jones and the Six yes. we went to Waterstones I bought a tote bag. She bought 11 books, very different approaches there. Um, so I went towards Stones and she was like, I have to get another one of her books. So she's oh, currently brilliant. reading that. But That's yeah, fantastic. and also I think Malibu Rising is on my list as well, which is one of hers. But yeah. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. Tilly, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. Well, it really was. Excellent. Um, now, we've uh, our selection of, of books this week, uh, we've got a couple of books um, with Prague as, as the subject. And I've chosen um, what I think is a great book, and it's called I Serve the King of England by Bo- Bohumil Harabal, which was first published by Chateau and Windus in 1989, and then in paperback by Picador in 1990. Now, this is a novel uh, about uh, Gite, uh, which means child in Czech, who is an aspiring hotelier who lives through the fragile peace of the 1930s and through the occupation of Czechoslovakia by Nazi Germany and through the communist takeover and subsequent rule of his country. And he has a racy adventures in the old world uh, Prague and falls in love with a Hitler partisan mansion called Lisa. Now, Dice's career begins at the Golden Prague Hotel, which, despite its name, is in the countryside, where he has been appointed a busboy. And it's at the Golden Prague Hotel that Dice quickly learns how to appreciate money. And we have a little snippet here. I served the King of England. Chapter One, A Glass of Grenadine. When I started to work at the Golden Prague Hotel, the boss took hold of my left ear, pulled me up and said, You're a busboy here, so remember, you don't see anything and you don't hear anything. Repeat what I have just said. So I said I wouldn't see anything and I wouldn't hear anything. Then the boss pulled me up by my right ear and said, But remember too that you've got to see everything and hear everything. Repeat it after me. I was taken aback, but I promised I would see everything and hear everything. That's how I began. Every morning at six, when the hotel keeper walked in, we were lined up like an army on parade, with the maitre d', the waiters and me, a tiny busboy, along one side of the carpet, and along the other side, the cooks, the chambermaids, the laundress and the scullery maid. The hotel keeper walked up and down to see that our dickies were clean and our collars and jackets spotless, that no buttons were missing and that our shoes were polished. He'd lean over and sniff to make sure our feet were washed, and then he'd say, Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, ladies. And after that, we weren't allowed to talk to anyone. 
The waiters taught me the proper way to wrap knives and forks in napkins, and every day I emptied the ashtrays and polished the metal caddy for the hot Frankfurt as I sold at the station, something I'd learned from the busboy who was no longer a busboy because he'd started waiting on tables. And you should have heard him beg and plead to be allowed to go on selling Frankfurters. A strange thing to want to do, I thought at first, but I quickly saw why, and soon it was all I wanted to do too. Walk up and down the platform several times a day, selling hot Frankfurters for one crown eighty apiece. Sometimes the passengers would only have a twenty-crown note, sometimes a fifty, and I'd never have the change, so I'd pocket his note and go on selling until finally the customer got on the train, worked his way to the window and reached out his hand. Then I'd put down the caddy of hot frankfurters and fumble about in my pocket for the change, and the fellow would yell at me to forget the coins and just give him the notes. Very slowly I'd start patting my pockets and the dispatcher would blow his whistle and very slowly I'd ease the notes out of my pocket and the train would start moving and I'd trot alongside it and when the train had picked up speed I'd reached out so that the notes would just barely brush the tips of the fellow's fingers and sometimes he'd be leaning out so far that someone inside would have to hang on to his legs and one of my customers even beamed himself on a signal post. But then the fingers would be out of reach and I'd stand there panting, the money still in my outstretched hand, and it was all mine. They almost never came back for their change, and that's how I started having money of my own, a couple of hundred a month, and once I even got handed a thousand crowd note. And Julian, that is brilliant reading. It was so <laughs> funny. I'd never heard of this book until you introduced it to me. Oh, well, thank you. No, it, 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 it is. It's, it's, it's a super book. It really is. Um, and after that, we find that um, uh, DJ obviously finds that uh, what money can buy, amongst other things, women. Um, and um, and he's a, because of that, he's obliged to uh, leave the Golden Prague Hotel after the owner founds, finds out about his dalliances with courtesans right. and dismisses him, which is a bit rich because the owner himself has dalliances too. Uh, anyway, DJ finds another position at the Hotel Takota, which is located on a grand estate. Now, the only problem with this hotel is it's always empty, though it did host a visit by the president of the country and his French mistress. Also, on another occasion, when a general turned up um, on his own and drank vast amounts of, 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 of Armagnac and, and, and they said all oh, the food was horrible, but um, and had a great old time. <laughs> <laughs> but after some confusion over a six kilo gold religious statue um, called the Bambina de Praga, Giche um, sets off for Prague and by good fortune runs into Mr. Walden, um, a kitchen appliance salesman, who writes him a letter of recommendation to the manager of the Hotel Paris in Prague. G.J. Um, seems to have a knack for success and a likability uh, that attracts father-like figures. And the two influential characters, uh, one was the salesman, uh, Mr. Walden, who sells salami cutters and, and loves to lay his money out on the floor. And the other is the head waiter, who has a special talent for predicting exactly what hotel guests will want to eat for dinner. And when TJ asks him how he manages it, he always replies, because I served the King of England. There you are. Indeed. <laughs> Later, DJ has his own honour of serving the, the, the Emperor of Ethiopia, who's um, uh, in Prague for a state visit, and he awards him a special medal for his diligent service, but clouds soon gather when he is wrongly accused of stealing a gold mm. spoon. 
Anyway, many years later, um, um, I, um, in many ways, the, uh, I Served the King is a novel of two halves. I mean, the first half is Giche um, as he's serving all these curious characters in the, in, the, in the hotels he's working in and climbing up the hotel chain, uh, discovering his love of, of women along the way. And then we get to a turning point when he marries um lisa his his fiance which is the german um girl who's sympathetic to the nazis and he is subjected to scientific analysis to find out whether he as a czech is suitable enough to marry this pure aryan angel and make babies for the new reich compounding the humiliation he's always felt throughout his life because of his shortness of stature now, without giving too much away, uh, in the second half of the book, we see how Dice accumulates his wealth and then how he loses it. And we feel the impact of the aftermath of the Second World War on the people of Czechoslovakia. Um, so to find out what happened to Lisa and how Dice manages to fund the hotel of his dreams and how Dice's life turns out after the communists form the new government in Czechoslovakia and what happens to his hotel, you'll simply have to read the book. Brilliant. Now, it, it, uh, and it is. I mean, it it it, it is a, a very charming book. Now, James Wood wrote in the London Review of Books in in two thousand one, which I thought is, is I think captures it um, very well. I served the King of England is a joyful, picaresque story, which begins with Baron Munchausen-like adventures and ends in tears and solitude, a modulation typical of Hrabal's greatest work. And uh, uh, a fellow Czech writer, um, the, the, uh, Milan Kundera. Uh, author of The Unbearable Lightness of Being, called Hrabal one of our very best writers today. Now, it's still available, published by Vintage Classics in paperback, so you can go out and get it. And, tra-la, surprise, surprise, it has been turned into a film. Um, however, it is actually in Czech, um, and it, it was never uh, mainstream in English, but it is a Czech, and you can get it in DVD. Um and if, if if you're happy with subtitles, go and have a look. And I think uh, Heather, you you had a look at a, a clip of the film. Yes, you can see it on the uh, on the website. There's a little. Yeah, and, and you said it was really good. Oh, yeah. it's, it's really funny. Yeah. It's fantastic. Excellent. And the book sounds really funny. Yeah, so. it, is, it is. It's 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 well worth a read. Yeah, it's a little ge- a little gem of mine. And considering <laughs> uh, Milan Kundra is saying our very best writer, and I'd never yes. heard of him. Right, no. <laughs> it, it, oh. But obviously a big hit in Czechoslovakia. Yes. Oh, 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 now the Czech Republic. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, so I'm feeling very chastened and I'll definitely do this. So I've taken Prague as obviously our topic, but I've gone down for a war book, which Mm. isn't funny at all, but it is fantastic. And the reason I thought of it is that I was watching the BBC thriller The Tourist recently, which stars Jamie Dornan. Um, and he also stars in the film of the book I want to recommend, which is HHHH by Lawrence um, Binet, Laurent Binet. And um, really sadly, there were two great films released based on this story within six months of each other. Yes, I recall. Surely mm. that's so unfair. So the book was published in 2012 and the film was released in 2016 um, called Operation Anthropoid, um, which is uh, what the book is about. And it starred Jamie Dornan alongside Cillian Murphy. And then the book that the, sorry, the film that the book is based on, no, the 
film that uses the book as its base is The Man with an Iron Heart and must have been filled in the same locations just a few months later. And it's equally strong and it stars Rosamund Pike. Um, so that was a shame. But I was recommended... Um, for this book by a friend when we were about to go on holiday in Prague and you get a real feel of the place and the history so this is a must read if you're interested in World War II or have ever been or are planning to go to Prague and I'd recommend it for book clubs as well because it's got a fascinating story with a really interesting approach so it was the debut novel by Lauren Binet and it tells the story of Operation Anthropoid which is the plot to assassinate a Reinhard Heydrich who was the most dangerous man in the Third Reich. Now, the HHHH stands for a bit of German waggishness. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid I don't speak German, but it was roughly... Oh, in fact, do you speak German? Yes, I do. Um, So it's um, Himmler's Herz... Heist Heidrich. Now, obviously, I can translate that for you, which is Himmler's brain is called Heidrich. Uh, Because Heidrich was, of course, the German who had the pivotal role in the main key atrocities of the war, like Kristallnacht and the final solution itself. He was head of the Gestapo. And he got the nickname of the Butcher of Prague when he became protector of the annexed Czechoslovakia. So the story is well known. And obviously told in the films and told in many history books. But what's really good about this book is you've sort of got two stories in one. So you've got this coldly thrilling story that happens to be true about these heroes of the resistance interspersed with light reflections from the author about his concerns on doing justice to the story so problems associated with the research and and even anxieties about his girlfriend so Heydrich is very definitely the dominating character in the book but you've got these two stories sort of juxtaposed and um, it's really I mean, it's a truly amazing story of outstanding courage uh, about these young members of the Czech resistance um, who basically they were on a suicide mission. And um, and Binet, don't think he brings much new material, but it's this intermingling with the author trying to work out how to write the book effectively, which sort of builds up the tension. And somewhere mm. his own angst sort of lays this another layer of understanding to the story and makes it easy to connect with um, from where we are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, or perhaps you might find it a bit fatuous, a bit of a fatuous irritation getting in the way of facts. But that, I think, is why it's a really good book club, because there's lots of lots to debate. But anyway, mm-hmm. if you are visiting Prague, you've just got to read this book and then visit the church where these resistance heroes held out. And you can still see the bullet holes in the church wall of the Cathedral Church of St. Cyril's and Methodius, which is known locally as the Parachutes Church, which is a short walk from the, uh, the large square in the city. And uh, if you go to the church, just say thank you to these young men in the resistance. Yes. Good. Uh, yeah, and, and I think it, it's important. So Himmler's Hirn um, Heist Heidrich. And if you're going for the book, it's capital H, lower H, uh, lowercase H, and capital H and capital H again. Yes. So that's how, it, so that's how it's spelt. By Lawrence Binet. Yeah. Great. So other books we've been recommending today are... Uh, Lord of the Rings Trilogy by J.A.R. Tolkien, published by HarperCollins. Kerry Hume, The Bone People, published by Picador. 
Uh, Can't We Just Print Money by Rupal Patel and Jack Meaning, uh, published by Cornerstone Press. Um, Audienceology, How Moviegoers Shape the Films We Love by Kevin Gertz and published by Simon & Schuster. The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, a novel by uh, Taylor Jenkins Reid and published by Simon & Schuster. Anything Could Happen by Lucy Diamond and published by Quercus. I Served the King of England by Bohumil Rabal, published by Vintage Classics. And HHHH by Laurence Binet, published by Vintage as well. Obviously, Indeed. Vintage getting in there. Uh, yes, a couple. Well, and a couple of Simon & Schuster's as well. Um, now, we look forward to you joining us um, next Wednesday between 11am and 12 noon on River Radio. Absolutely, we do. And don't forget, if you're not able to join us live for any of our programmes, you can listen again directly from the website and you might need to register, but that is all free. Or you can get Turning Pages as a podcast. You just need to search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast and it comes up and you'll be able to listen to us at any time. And if you enjoyed this programme live this morning, listen again, twice is nice. Price is nice. <laughs> twice is nice. Oh, twice is, oh, twice is nice. I always listen to it again, don't you? Oh, yes, lovely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. When 